Welcome to Agent Provocateur. Alan, this is going to be a special episode uh, because it's 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 the question you must get asked the most. It's certainly the question when people DM me. They're like, hey, do you mind asking Alan about, you know, a little subject like what it's like to become an agent and what do I need to do? A lot of people want to become player agents. So we're going to present this in two parts, right? right? And, right. and it, because we ended up having a very, very long discussion on it. But as we do um, before, so we're going to release one part this week, one part next week. We talk a little a little bit of news first because it's always kind of good to keep an eye on things around the NHL. And Alan, um, one of the things that people have, have really been fascinated by is the Arizona Coyotes um, arena situation. You know, the context there being that, you know, Gila River does not want them there anymore. They won't sign another lease. Their lease is up. Uh, Tempe, if it happens, it's not been approved by city council. If Tempe happens, which is where the new proposed arena site, there's still three years from that arena being usable. So maybe, maybe four. Maybe four. That's the first right. time I've heard that. So what do you do in the meantime? So the proposal is Arizona State University, which has a new rank. 5,000 people can be in it, but uh, they can't, the Coyotes will not be able to use the dress rooms that are already there. So they'll have to augment and retrofit this place. And it could bring the capacity down to as low as 3,200 people per game. Yep. Uh, Gary Bettman said in his press conference, well, it, it might even be better for them. I have to say, what's been the reaction? What's your thoughts on this particular move? Is it the right move for the Coyotes and we just all can't see it? Because it does seem perplexing when everybody else is 15,000 plus. Well, I would go back to 2008, 2009. You may remember uh, Jim Balzilli came in and bought the Coyotes and wanted to move them mm -hmm. uh, to Hamilton. And there was uh, litigation in federal court. And I recall vividly Gary Bettman testifying that Glendale was the perfect location for the Arizona Coyotes going forward. And he went on and on and on about how Glendale was perfect and it would allow the Coyotes to do this and that uh, within the community and, uh, and, and also made a, 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 a real point in saying, we are the experts in location of franchises and in arenas, and how dare anybody question us as to our decision-making as to where a team should be located and what arena would be good for them or not? Because no one knows except us. We're the experts. Well, you come back now to 2022, and uh, the Coyotes are basically being evicted from, uh, from Glendale, Mm -hmm. uh, the lease is over. There doesn't appear to be any appetite to sign a, a new lease right now. Uh, so maybe Gary Bettman didn't get it right uh, back then. I mean, a lot of things have happened. They've been through a lot of uh, instability with different ownership and so forth. I just think that uh, for the Coyotes to go into an arena, and let's just say 5,000 seats for now, but very true. It could go down to as low as 3,200 if all the renovations that are planned uh, do take place and they're going to have to build ancillary dressing rooms and so forth uh, to make that location work. Uh, what, what I would want to know is how do you go 
into ASU without a firm deal to build the rink in Tempe, right? So mm. otherwise, otherwise you're moving the team into a, a, a new location, which by all accounts have to be temporary. Mm-hmm. And if the Tempe deal falls through and there's no guarantees at all that that deal is actually going to happen and come to fruition, mm-hmm. um, then what? I, I think that um, right now, the reality of the situation is uh, the, the Coyotes in Phoenix are on life support. We're at the end of the road. Um, this is the final option, putting them into ASU on a temporary you know, three to four year basis. If the Tempe deal doesn't work, I think ultimately the NHL has to look at other locations, other cities to move the team. And before we speculate on what those cities would might be, because I know people are going to want to know that or what your thoughts are on that, whether you can answer it or not, I don't know. But I want to ask this first, and I think this is really important. When you have a league that shares revenue, right? right, makes up the revenue of other teams, there are winners, there are haves and have nots, not winners and losers, but haves and have nots. Teams like the Leafs, the Rangers, Bruins, going to make a lot of money. Teams like Arizona are going to lose a lot of money. And then built into the CBA, you have a 50-50 revenue split between players and owners. Would the Players Association look at this situation and say, listen, you're not even trying. This is is a huge issue. You're going to lose a lot of money and we're going to have to pay into that via escrow. You're going to keep more of what we have to keep in escrow because this team's viability in this market is questionable and they don't even have the top end availability, even they could sell out the arena at 18,000, they've only got 3,200 seats or 4,000 seats or 5,000 seats. Does that raise issues? Sure it does. And I think the there, there's going to have to be a negotiation between the NHL and the NHLPA over Arizona. And uh, there's really only two ways that uh, that can play out. Either you factor Arizona completely out of the equation and you take the revenue of the 31 teams and then you add uh, another piece, the, the 32 the teams into that mix, so mm-hmm. that you're completely negating the, um, the HRR number coming out of Arizona. Or maybe another way is you take the HRR of 31 teams, average it, and assume that number for Arizona um, on HRR reports in calculating league-wide HRR, Mm -hmm. but there is absolutely no way the actual HRR numbers in Arizona can stand and go into the calculation of HRR without an adjustment for allowing them to go to that location and also to calculate revenue sharing. Because if I'm a owner of a big market team and everything that has gone on in Arizona up till now results in them now playing, for example, in front of 3,200 fans. Uh, I'm not very happy having a portion of my revenue going to Arizona for a full revenue share. Right. So, yeah. So there's yeah. definitely going to be an issue. I think Gary Bettman's going to have to navigate the waters uh, you know, on the one side from his own owners who aren't going to be happy 
on the on the revenue sharing side and the overall revenue side. And I think also there's going to have to be some negotiation and and recognition in a agreement that the low HRR number coming out of Arizona gets adjusted. Right. And I, I, yeah, I wondered that. So he seems to be hemmed in on both sides there, right? That's going to be tough to negotiate on both sides. I wondered what the NHL executive leadership in terms of, um, sorry, the the ownership executive, right? Because there's the 32 owners in the league, and then there's the ownership executive, which I believe is eight to 10 teams. They're the ones that really call the shots. You have to think they'd be upset by this. Um, you know, and I, it makes me wonder, Alan, and I think a lot of people wonder this, not for the fans that are there. If you're a fan of the Arizona Coyotes, gosh, you're, you're in, that's, that's devotion because they have made it very difficult to be a fan of the Coyotes. But what is the NHL's attachment to Phoenix, to Arizona itself? Clearly we know hockey can work in Southern States. We've seen it in Tampa. We've seen it in California. We've seen it in Florida more recently seen it in Nashville. But for some reason, the NHL continues to hold on to a property in Arizona that continually can't get it right. What is the attachment? Why are they still there? Well, I can say this. Um, if the original arena proposal in Scottsdale had come to fruition, I believe the Arizona franchise would have been wildly successful and played in front of full houses every night. Um, in the old, old arena downtown that was known at the time as America West Arena, uh, where the Coyotes played, which had thousands of obstructed view seats in the upper deck. And I used to go and, and, and watch games in that arena on a regular basis. The arena was full. Even wow. with the obstructed view seats, that arena was located downtown. Um, with arenas and cities, it's all about the location. Mm-hmm. And the reason why Glendale, uh, I think, um, was so problematic for so many years is that it basically is in the middle of nowhere. And to drive out there, you know, you're a family of four, you got kids in school, you're a hockey family, you're huge hockey fans, you're season ticket holders. You want to drive all the way out to Glendale from Scottsdale, where a good many of the season ticket holders and hockey families reside. It's, it's a good 45 minutes to an hour in traffic to get out to Glendale and then to drive back. You can't do that. You can't do that with two kids. Right. So it really was uh, doomed to failure by putting the arena there in the first place. You were never going to fill it up. And it was, you know, and, and, and by having a arena that is at 20% capacity, 30% capacity in, in paid tickets, because they gave away thousands of free tickets to pump up the attendance numbers, but they weren't generating any revenue. They were free comp tickets going out you know, by the, by the thousands, every home game. So it was just doomed to failure from the beginning. But now you, if you had uh, a beautiful new facility built in Scottsdale, um, that arena would have been full and the whole trajectory of that organization would have been different. And people always talk about viable markets. 
Um, we know Houston's a market the NHL must have their eye on because they're a top 10 market. You got to think at some point, I know it sounds crazy, but the Atlanta market is still huge. It's top 10. Kansas City has come up. And then, of course, for Canadian fans, obviously, we know we got an arena ready to go in Quebec City. And we know that the NHL politely takes the call from political leaders there, but doesn't really have any interest. There's also, and this is something I've got my eyes on, even though they've said it's not for hockey, the Oakview Group, who just did the Seattle Arena and yeah. just did the, the new one at Belmont in, uh, in, in New York, is they are building an arena, or they're building something, probably an arena, in Hamilton, in Tor- just outside of Toronto. Right. What of those markets is the most viable? What do you think is the most likely? If the Coyotes were to move, and listen, no one's holding you to this, what NHL market, what's what's the NHL most excited about of those markets? Well, I, I don't think the NHL is very excited about any of the markets right now, or they would have already gone into them. Okay. Uh, and some of those markets, like Atlanta, um, there have been uh, two iterations of NHL teams. The Flames have moved to Calgary uh, and the Thrashers um, that moved to Winnipeg. Um for me personally, I believe there should have been a team long ago back in Quebec as soon as the Videotron Center was built. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Quebec City, I believe, can can support the franchise, the rivalry that existed um, back in the 80s between the Nordiques and the Canadians was legendary. And uh, I would love to see the Nordiques back in the NHL. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think ownership there uh Quebec or has the resources to back the team in a way that uh wasn't there the last time uh and and I also think that it would be it would be great for hockey overall in Canada not just the province of Quebec but in Canada to have a team there they they never should have left um they they are part of the fabric Quebec City is part of the fabric of the NHL Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where Jean Beliveau came from, where Guy Lafleur played junior hockey. Um, there really needs to be and should be a team back there. Uh, I passionately believe in it, and uh, and I believe one day we'll we'll get it back there. Jeremy Jacobs was on record, Alan, as saying, Well, we just don't think the sponsorship dollars are in market. And Quebec or, as you mentioned, would be the owner. They are, or at least the most likely owner. They're a massive media conglomerate, they have the money. Um, we know that teams like Winnipeg, massive media money and cell phone money and everything behind them lose money. We know that. Right. Um, right. Is Quebec, is this, are the sponsorship dollars there? Would it be a money losing club? Would it be a money neutral club? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that without, I guess, getting too granular with the business? Um, I, I wish I could predict that to any level of uh, certainty, um, but I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you that in my discussions with people um, uh, who would be involved in ownership in Quebec City, they fervently believe they can pull it off. Hmm. And uh, these are these are people with a proven track record of business success. Um, they have uh, turned everything they've ever touched into gold, and I think that uh, that. Uh, if given the opportunity, they'll find a way to make it all work. And there would be certainly no lack of fans and no lack of coverage. 
Exactly. Okay. This is very interesting. So uh, Arizona will continue to keep an eye on. Uh, Alan, let's get to how to be an agent in the NHL. Let's do it. Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild. How are you today, Adam? I'm good, Alan. I'm a little jealous of the sunshine in the background of your office there. Um, it's very gray and cold in Toronto, as you can imagine. So it's a little bit uh, kind of wishing that we uh, that we also had SDPN offices down there, but maybe one day. Maybe one day. It was uh, <laughs> 80, 85 degrees yesterday in L.A., but, you know, being down here now for 33 years, I learned one thing very early on. No matter what the weather is here in L.A., whether it's raining or gray, dark skies, in the odd day that you get a, a, some bad weather, mm-hmm. you can never complain about it because that makes you an asshole. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it yeah. does. Come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. even when it's pouring rain and even when it's, you know, windy and dark and uh, gray and people are like, oh, how's the weather out there today? I'm like, oh, it's just wonderful. Um, funny story about Alan and I just just quickly. The first time I ever talked to Alan, he picked up the phone, had no idea who I was. And uh, and Alan and I said, so where are you right now? And, and, and Alan, you said, uh, I'm on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> just hanging on the beach. No big deal. You know, it was like a Wednesday. Like, oh <laughs> God. Um, yeah. We were, we were staying at a beach house uh, for, uh, for a month last summer. And uh, it was literally on the sand. You walk out the front door and you're standing on the beach. So every afternoon I take an hour in between calls and uh you know, traipse down to the waterline a little bit above it and sit down and uh, and uh, got my phone charged and sit there and go through, you know, emails and text messages while I'm sitting in the sun. And you called. <laughs> I yeah. interrupted that time. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's amazing. I mean, listen, it's uh, it's the one of the in terms of climates, the best place to work. What I love about L.A. and and uh, and then I swear we're going to get to this. What I love about L.A. is. Um, when it rains, that's the top news story. I think that that's amazing. Like it, every time, cause I have to follow like KTLA and stuff on, on, on Twitter, just to make sure that I know what's going on in the States and certain news, uh, like New York, Miami, LA, Chicago. And like, every time it's raining, they got five reporters on scene, like doing live hits from like, well, you know, it's raining here and some, there's some dirt coming off the mountain. We're worried about mudslides. It's like, oh, Man, that sounds terrible. I can't imagine. So, um, Alan, one of the things that when we started this show that people begged you for, begged you for this, uh, because there's so many people who listen to the show that want to do exactly what you do, uh, is they want to know how to become an agent. We've talked about it a little bit when we did all our all questions episode. We talked about how you got into it. Uh, we talked about the call that you put into the agent when you said, hey, I want to be an agent. And he said, you got to have balls, kid, and basically hung up afterwards. But we're today we're actually going to get granular, right? We're going to get into what exactly you need to be and do, you know, within a framework to be just like Alan Walsh. And I'm actually I, I'm I'm interested to hear your perspective on this because um, there's a lot of questions to get to, but there's not just one path, right? It's a very it can be very different depending upon who you are. Sure, and and the one thing I find when you talk to agents. Uh, not just in hockey, but in all sports, is that 
in many circumstances, maybe even a majority of circumstances, how a person finds his way into representing athletes in the industry is more likely than not happenstance. Hmm. There was no plan to do that. You meet somebody, somebody says something that triggers an idea in your mind. Um, Somebody starts doing something and an opportunity comes to them out of the blue. And the next thing you know, you're into it. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, very rare. It happens, but it's more rare that somebody, you know, grows up uh, wanting to be an agent and follows along that path and finally gets into the business. And it was something that they always wanted to do. So I have a lot of good friends who are baseball agents, football agents. And when you talk to them about their career path, something happened. And, and, and more likely than not, like I said, it was a coincidence, a chance meeting, a chance encounter, a chance conversation that uh, led to them actually getting into the business. So, uh, I, I mean, we'll start from the beginning. I think a lot of people, and we have a lot of people listening to this show and listening to the network that are in their formative years. They're deciding what to do with their lives right now. And this is, you know, from the, from the outside, Alan, it's pretty it's pretty spectacular. Like you're going to all-star games and you're uh, you're talking to players and that sort of thing. And people want to know that first starting point. And the first question always is education. Um, what do you need? Do you need a do you need education at all? Do you need a law degree? Everybody assumes that lawyers are also agents. You are a lawyer. You also yeah. worked in another path of of law. Um, what where where do we start there? The question I get more than any other is uh when when younger people call me, I get calls from high school students. You know, I want to be an agent. Uh, college students, uh, students who are nearing the end of their undergraduate experience, and the question they have is, "I want to be an agent. Do I need to go to law school, or can I just go out there and try to start working as an agent? What do you think?" And in my opinion, and it's only my opinion, and many people would disagree, I think having a law degree or an MBA gives you a certain level of credibility and the tools that you acquire in in achieving that law degree or MBA are very useful when you uh, do get into the industry and start representing athletes. So... Uh, I understand there are many agents out there who have uh, no education at all, no college. Mm -hmm. There are some that may not have even finished high school. And uh, I'm a big believer in life experience, uh, work experience. You know, I have tremendous respect for people, whether they've gone through college or not. But if someone is picking up the phone, calling me and asking me my opinion, if you're asking me my opinion, uh, I see a certain level of credibility that exists amongst the people in this business who do have law degrees or MBAs. And that and that carries over more than just getting your foot in the door, right? It's it's this is something you carry with you, you would say? Yeah, I think like, for example, I became a member of the bar in California in 1990. 
And I've had, and I, and I practiced uh, as a prosecutor, as many people know, for five years in the LA district attorney's office. And uh, the experience that I had trying 40 murder cases uh, by myself, I didn't have any real support at all. I wasn't acting as a second chair or third or fourth chair in litigation. I mean, these were files dumped on my desk, sometimes with only 48 hours uh, to prepare. And I handled them all by myself. And I was a kid in my 20s. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, that experience shaped everything that I've done since then. Um, the, the ability to uh, think on your feet and go out and, and look into, you know, a, a, a year or two into the future and, and strategically plan things out. I think all come from that initial experience. I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity. And I think to take that part of, of my story and take it out, I don't really know what would have happened when I confronted some of the issues that I did confront as an agent. And I'm sure that helps with, you know, obviously looking over a contract, that's the easy one. Um, but it also, you know, the law challenges you on, on many different things, like taking the bar from what I understand, you know, it's, you can be presented with four right answers and your job is to pick the rightest of the right answers. And, and, um, so I say this because my girlfriend's a lawyer. So she showed me some of the pictures that are they, the, the questions that I'm like, I don't even know how to begin to answer this. And she's like, that's what law school teaches you. It's, it's the changing changes the way you think. I'm a, I think is what she said. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. And, and you know, out here in California, uh, along with New York, are the two hardest states to to pass the bar. I think the bar pass rate in California is just under 50%. Wow. Uh, where there's other states where it's 85, 90%. So, you know, it's it's a challenge. And, and it was a challenge, especially for somebody who's young mm -hmm. and uh, just getting started. Now, one of the things I'm sure you get all the time, I'm seeing it on our Discord channel. I'm seeing it in my DMs when people DM me uh, to, to say, hey, can you ask Alan this? Uh, when it comes to people that want to be agents, obviously, they're hockey fans. Obviously, they're fans of the sport. Do you need to be a big fan of the sport to be a very good agent? One, you know, I've had over the years, many interns who come into the office and, uh, uh, I usually sit them down and I give them a little uh, guide uh, speech uh, to, to get started. And the last thing I always say to them is, if, if you're a fan, check your fandom at the door. Okay. Because there's no room in this office for fans. And, and I remember um, uh, years ago having an intern who was a huge New Jersey Devils fan. And on the second or third day, he was working in the office one summer. Um, uh, I'm on speakerphone in my office, and I'm talking to Patrick Eliash, a longtime client of mine. And he had come in, opened the file cabinet, and he was putting something in. And then he stood there, and you just saw the look on his face. You, you know. And when I when I I got off the phone, he's like, "What what 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 was was that, Patrick Eliash?" And I was like, knock it off. There's no room for that in this office. Knock it off right now. Right. And uh, 
you know, so many times I get emails, I get phone calls, people approach me and, and say, I am the biggest hockey fan. And that's why I want to be an agent. There is so much more that goes into uh, being a successful agent than, than just, I'm the biggest fan. You know, we're all fans. I mean, and, and I don't oh, mean yeah. to in any way disrespect that. I grew up an obsessed hockey fan, obsessed. Um, you know, I think I shared with you in a, in a previous oh, yeah. uh, episode how my dad would come home from business trips and I would race to the front door and he always brought uh, a hockey book that he would buy on one of his business trips from a, a bookstore. And, and I'd run to the front door, grab the book, go to my room. And I was seven, eight, nine years old and, um, and, and read the book cover to cover before coming out. You know, when the, when the Canadians won uh, the, the first cup, I remember was being six years old in 1971 uh, when the Canadians won the uh, cup in Chicago game seven, uh, three to two um, with um, Jacques Lemaire in that game scored on a uh, slap shot, 75 footer from just inside the red line on Tony Esposito, Henri Richard scored two goals in game seven and won the cup is that's kind of the stuff that I do. I have that like still all in my head. Um, I cried. I, I yeah, remember six years old, you know, seeing the Canadians win the cup and, and, and I, and I was crying, you know, with joy, tears of joy. Uh, so I understand that, but um, whether you're talking to a general manager who's been in the business a long time, who also played the game for a long time, uh, clients, parents, whoever you're dealing with uh, coaches, you know, there's, there's no, and there shouldn't be any awe of who you're speaking to. Mm. The, the fan in you has to be put aside. And, and it's not that you need to be jaded at all about the business every day. I, I acknowledge how blessed I am uh, and fortunate I am to be doing something that I just love to do. I don't ever feel like I have a job because I wake up every day and I'm pursuing passionately something that I love. But uh, the idea that I'm a fan and that qualifies you to somehow be an agent, it just <laughs> kind of... Uh, Right from day one, you walk into my office, you check your fandom at the door. <laughs> well, I mean, and and it has to go with this podcast too, because I've, despite uh, you know what people say, uh, I'm still a huge Leaf fan, and I'm ke I keep trying to get uh, Alan to put all of his clients on the Leafs, and he kind of laughs at me and just sends me uh, emojis like you idiot. Uh, but you know, <laughs> I mean, listen, Alan, you were a goalie for a long time. You were, like you said, obsessed Montreal Canadiens fan. Um, I'm sure sometimes too, because it's business oriented, um, the the business probably can grind a little bit of the fandom out of you. And I wondered on your side of things, how do you keep it in perspective? Like CJ uh, uh, always calls it working at the candy store, right? If we're working in hockey, he's like, sometimes it's hard, but you are still working at the candy store. How do you keep that perspective and not become jaded? Uh, because I'm sure you wouldn't want like a, an intern to come in and be like, I don't care about any of this shit. You know, like, you know what I mean? You wouldn't want a jaded intern 
How do you keep that perspective? And what's a healthy perspective on the game? Well, I, I think the people who work with me uh, see the enthusiasm I have and the passion I have every day uh, for the clients. Mm-hmm. And, and everything begins and ends with loyalty to the players that I represent. And I, am, uh, I, I was just talking to somebody this morning, and, and, I, and I said to uh, an NHL player, I said, hey, I just wanted to check in with you on this one thing. I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and while staring at the ceiling, thought about this and just wanted to check in with you on it. And, and he laughed and he goes, oh, you do that too? I do that every once in a while. I said, yeah, but I do that every night. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. you don't sleep, right? Well, I, I don't sleep a lot. I have, I've always had, you know, three, four hours a night has been it for me. But uh, many times I'm uh, staring at the ceiling at three o'clock in the morning, thinking about, you know, ooh, I need to check on this and I need to verify this. And I got to call this player and ask him this. And you get this little running checklist you got going off in your brain all the time, which kind of interferes with very deep sleep. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I think that... Um, I have, since I got into the business, fashioned a set of values that are uh, very important to me and define who I am and the type of agent I always wanted to be, aspire to be. And I try to live that every day. And I know that, uh, you know, I, I see people sometimes make a comment. Uh, I've never agreed with Alan Walsh before that loudmouth, but, you know, but on this one point, I finally, I, we finally agree, <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, okay, but I don't, I don't work for you <laughs> and, and I don't have a fiduciary obligation to you mm-hmm. and whether you get pissed off or not, I don't, I don't think about it for one second. You know, my entire focus is always singularly on the clients and passionately pursuing what's in their best interest. Now, uh, we're going to get into how to get started in just a second, but I wanted, you mentioned the intern and I want to ask this quick question because Alan, I've, I've talked to you many, many times on camera, off camera. What's an interview with Alan Walsh like? If we all, if we all sat down and we're in your office and there was a lineup thousands of people long to be your intern. What's that like? What kind of questions are you asking? What can we, you know, if somebody really wants to be an agent, what are you looking for for somebody in a prospective young agent? Um, if somebody's coming into my office and they want to intern here, uh, I want to know that they've on their own taken the initiative to pick up the collective bargaining agreement and read it through cover to cover. Before they and come I, in your office. Before they ever walk in. I okay. want to be an agent. Okay, well, I wanted to be an agent 27 years ago. And I spent uh, uh, time, when I, when I started focusing myself on representing players and wanting to be an agent, I'll tell you what I did. And, and this is a good tip for anybody else out there who is thinking, I want to be an agent as well. I went and got literally every book ever written by an agent to that point up to 1995. And I read it cover to cover. 
And I didn't just look at sports agents. I looked at Hollywood agents as well, because representing talent has a lot of crossover with representing professional athletes. Yeah. Right. And I, I mean, I, and, and it's not, we're not talking four or five books. I probably had, you know, 35, 40 books that I poured through voraciously read cover to cover one after the other, after the other. I also went and looked at, and this is really where the law, law and legal background comes from uh, law review articles. And there are a lot of law, law review articles on the collective bargaining agreement and on the sports agent industry. I read everything I can get my hands on. Uh, I got my hands on the collective bargaining agreement and I read that. Uh, I started picking up the phone and calling people, cold calling people, like this baseball agent that I recounted in a prior episode. <laughs> that was just one of you know, literally hundreds of calls I made to different people. Um, I picked up the phone one day and called Brian Burke when he was uh, a general manager. And, uh, and I'm sure he would never remember the call uh, to this day, but he took the call and we had a conversation. I knew that he was an agent who uh, then went to work for the league. And uh, I wanted to ask his perspective on a few things. And he very graciously took the call and answered my questions. If I ever sat with him today and asked him about the call, he'd have no clue that he ever, <laughs> you know, talked to me because, you know, I was just some kid calling him. Uh, and, and he was very gracious about it. But I had literally hundreds of conversations like that before I ever did anything affirmative to, 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 to getting into the business. Mm-hmm. So I went and educated myself on, and I knew who all the agents were. I learned all their backstories, um, who they represented. And, and I figured one day I'm going to be sitting in someone's office on the other side, and I'm going to have an opportunity to impress upon them how serious I am about becoming an agent and being successful and that I've given it a lot of thought. And that meeting ultimately happened for me with my original partner in the agent business, David Shadia where he agreed to give me 20 minutes of his valuable time. He had been one of the biggest agents in the world in the 1970s. Uh, He had gotten completely out of the agent business around 1980, 81. And here we are, 1995. And I cold called him like you did to me that day on the beach. And uh, I told him that I was... uh, you know, from California, he was a very high profile, powerful Montreal lawyer, and that I wanted to ask him on questions about how I could get started in the agent business, knowing his background. And he said, come to my office tomorrow at 1.30 and I'll give you 20 minutes. Wow. And I, I went to his office and um, I, I went in. And, and it was the biggest office I had ever seen in my life. You could land a 747 in there. I went and sat behind his big desk and we started talking. And the whole purpose of the meeting, he was going to give me advice on how to get started. 
20 minutes turned into four hours. And at the end of the four hours, he said to me, you know, kid, um, my biggest regret was getting out of the sports business when I did in the 19 early eighties. And I've always thought about somehow getting back in, um, really impressed with what you've done so far in getting yourself ready. If you're open to it, uh, how would you like to be partners 50, 50? And we shook hands and we shook hands that day on a 50, 50 partnership. And that's how we started. And together, together, he and I, he was my mentor. Um, He taught me, uh, most of what I, I know about being an agent, um, but he saw something in me to, to, to go from 20 minutes to four hours and, and to offer that at the end of our meeting. And, um, and very quickly, he and I together built a business from scratch with no clients at all where in a few years we were representing 20 players in the NHL. So, and, and that was just the beginning of what we were doing together, you know? So uh, we started, you know, build, you know, opening offices all over the world. We started hiring people uh, to work in these offices, to recruit, to work in player development and, and expand, expand, grow, grow, grow. And, and we did that together. Um, And, and I'm very proud of it. And, uh, you know, David was was significantly older than me. He's retired now, but we're still in close touch mm-hmm. um, because of that bond that we have and the closeness, uh, you know, two people working as partners together, building something that they both loved and cared about that uh, was significant and hopefully lasts beyond, you know, our lifetime in the business. No kidding. Wow. One meeting. So that's the thing, right? And, and, and that's why that story is so important. Uh, and I didn't even know that, Alan. I didn't know it was the first meeting. Um, you're the, the first meeting you get might be the meeting, yep. right? Get in there and be prepared. Um, and that can go for anything. Like if you're listening to this and you don't want to be a sports agent, I, I remember when I was applying to be a radio DJ my first time, uh, they said, somebody, somebody said to me, memorize the playlist know exactly what shows happened when, including the syndicated stuff. That cut. It was a country music station and I was trying out for it and I knew I had the schedule committed to memory and I have a terrible memory. Um, and I had the, you know, all, every song that they were playing, I didn't know country music that well, but you have to get in there and know that. That's amazing, Alan. I, I love that story. Um, so when you do get started, let's say you're, you're, you're an intern, obviously familiar with the CBA, familiar with the bylaws, then, you know, you take a step up you have to look at being certified, right, Alan? Like it was sort of, that was the next step for you. Um, What does that process even look like to be a certified NHL agent? So every player's association right now in the major team sports, whether it's baseball, uh, MLBPA, NFLPA, MBPA, or NHLPA, uh, have in their... Uh, collective bargaining agreements, the power to uh, regulate and certify agents. So the NHLPA negotiates the rules around the game and they then delegate through the CBA, the power for agents 
that they've certified to conduct individual contract negotiations on behalf of players. So the step is you contact the NHLPA mm-hmm. and they have a, a, a department within the union that uh, works with agents and getting them certified and you request the certification forms. And if I recall correctly, it was 30, 40 pages of uh, biographical information, education, uh, work experience. Uh, and they ask questions, you know, doing a, a background check. Have you ever been arrested? Have you ever been convicted? Have you ever had a civil judgment against you for fraud? And they go through all of those things. And then you sign your name under penalty of perjury, send it back. And then they conduct a background investigation on you. And uh, within around, you know, one or two months, you'll get a notice that you have been granted a provisional certification because you are not, at least in hockey, you cannot be certified by the NHLPA as a certified NHLPA agent until you represent one client under NHL contract or a client who's been drafted by an NHL team. That's the final step in actually becoming certified. So, so that's a bit from, of, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. So you go from being granted um, provisional or pending certification where everything's in order, you just need a client to actually having a client and then saying, okay, now I'm certified. Now the client part, I was going to say there, that's got to be the barrier, right? I mean, that's that's got to be tricky. Or do you, like chicken or the egg here, Alan, are we, do you go to the NHL if you think you've got a client ready to be represented and go, now I want to get my certification or do you get the certification or you get the paperwork going and then you find the client? What comes first? I think everybody is is different. But what, okay. what I did, what I did was I had made the decision here. I had a partner. Um, we created a company together. Uh, we didn't have anything beyond that. Um, you know, I was in the process of getting business cards made up and uh, doing all the things you would do to set up your initial office, but we had no clients. Right. And, and what I did was I left the district attorney's office and I said to myself, if I'm going to do this, I'm not doing this part-time. I'm not going to do this 25% of my day or 50% of my day. I am going all in from day one. And that was the commitment that I made. I believed in myself. I believed I would be able to sit with people and, uh, and convince, convince them, players and parents, that I would have their best interests to heart. And I would go out there and do everything I could to um, make their day tomorrow a little bit better than it was today. But I really was learning. I admit it right now. I was really learning on the go with all the work that I did to prepare myself for becoming an agent. There really is no preparation that um, you can acquire before you're actually doing it yourself. 
Well, I imagine that would be pretty tough to train for. Now, I I, I want to ask because you did mention um, how you got in. You know, it was that one conversation. Why you were successful in the uh, in LA already as a prosecutor? Um, you're a lawyer. Uh, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good living, right? And you could have gone into private practice, um, made millions. Um, doing that. I mean, I want to know why risk that five years into your career for something that may or may not work out. Why did you want to become an agent? That's a great question. Um, I I think I had being an agent in the back of my mind uh, when I went to law school in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to work somehow in hockey. I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do within the sport, but I was someone who was always intrigued by the idea of representing players and being an agent. And uh, in law school, my last year, I kind of went off in a different direction where I started working in the DA's office, but I still always was was being drawn back to the idea of being involved in hockey and being involved in players' careers. And um, I had a couple of meetings, uh, one with an NHL player in San Jose that I went to college with, and uh, we were very close back then. And uh, we were sitting together one day having dinner, and he said to me, Cause he knew I, you know, I was telling him stories about, you know, trying these murder cases and he was playing for the sharks and they were relatively new. Uh, they were an expansion franchise. And, and he said, uh, man, I wish you could be my agent. Hmm. And, and, and I said, yeah, well, you know, I don't know anything about it. He says, no, he says, you don't, but I know you. Hmm. And it resonated with me. Now I never did become his agent. I didn't want to take advantage of the friendship. Um, you know, I don't know if he was saying it to, to compliment me or be nice or whether he was serious, but he never brought it up again. So maybe he was just <laughs> saying it to be nice. Um, but it, 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 it resonated with me. I was thinking about it. I was ruminating about it. And uh, I just, you know, you've asked me and other people have asked me, can you ever see yourself working for a team? You have all these agents going to work for teams. And, and, and I told you then, and I'll say again, you know, never, never, I can't identify. I I respect people who do it. I understand why people will do it, but that's not me. That's not who I am. I have always identified with players and take a, a passion. And sometimes you can't really explain your passions. They're just there. When you're fortunate enough to recognize them, you pursue them. Mm-hmm. And I've always pursued the passion of representing players. So um, can you recognize that in people that come through your office? Can you see that? Can you see the ones that are going to be, yeah, that one's got it. If they, if they stick with this, they can do this. I, I believe uh, I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I have someone working closely with me right now, younger, who, um, from my very first 
meeting with him. We went to lunch together. Uh, I knew from the first time we went to lunch together, maybe 15 minutes into our conversation, that this person is destined to be a superstar agent in the business. And I want him working with me. And very quickly, um, you know, he was working at the time for a team, an NHL team. And very quickly, we made a deal to have him come work uh, with us. And, and everything he's done since the day he's walked in the door has uh, justified my initial uh, feelings, <laughs> gut feeling about him. That's awesome. That's great. Well, I, I don't want to, I guess we can't name them, but I'm excited to meet them whenever, uh, whenever we get the chance. Um, uh, now, uh, when we talk about clients, okay. So you, you can, we go back to the certification to be fully certified. You have to have a client Requ getting clients. We've talked about this. We talked about it with Marty Havlat. We talked about it with flower. Uh, talked about it with Hubie. Um, there Jonathan Huberto for anybody that's not the, the <laughs> Um, and, and Mike Rupp too, there are so many different ways to get a client. Like I know with Marty Havlat, you went to check, uh, with, uh, Marc-Andre Fleury, you had somebody in Quebec who, and I forget his name for, excuse me, but, uh, somebody that was, that is a scout for you, still scouts for you today. And he said, this kid, this kid's something else. Yes. Um, uh, how do you attract clients? Because again, to be a certified player agent in the NHL, you have to have an NHL player. So even if you get a 16-year-old, it could be five or six years before they're actually in the NHL, if they make it at all. How do you get that first client? How do you get that certification? Well, what, what I did is I started cold calling uh, junior coaches back in 1995, all across the Quebec League, the Ontario League, and the Western Hockey League. And um, I had called... Uh, Ottawa, Kingston, Belleville, um, Niagara Falls, Oshawa. And I talked to all these coaches. I got them on the phone. You know, there's no cell phones back then. Mm -hmm. I got them on the phone. Uh, and I said, uh, Hey, my name's Alan Walsh. I'm a new agent in the business. Uh, I'm based in Los Angeles, but I was born and raised in Montreal. I would love a chance to come and visit with you one day face-to-face, -face, present my credentials and, uh, and talk to you about some of your players and talk to you about the agent business in general. Hear what you have to say, what you like about agents, what you don't like about agents. You know, Let me learn. And at the same time, you can get to know me and I can get to know you. Oh, yeah, sure, kid. Come on by anytime. Love to see you. Absolutely. Come on. So. I then flew from LA to Montreal, rented a car, and I drove to Ottawa. And I knocked on the door of the uh, office in the rink, and uh, and Brian Kilray, the legendary Brian Kilray, killer, come on in. And I go into uh, his office, and I was like, uh, "Hi, Mr. Kilray, uh, Alan Walsh here. Who? Uh, Alan Walsh." Uh, I uh, uh, spoke to you on the phone last week. You said, uh, come on by anytime. Young agent, just getting started in the business. Oh, yeah. Listen, all the players on my team are all represented by one agent. Have a very good relationship with him. Close the, uh, there's the, yeah. Thanks for coming. Uh, take care. And, and that was the end of that. 
Oh. So I get, I get back in my car and I'm like, am I imagining the conversation I had with him on the phone last week? He was like, oh yeah, he was excited, interested. Come on in, love to talk to you. And, uh, and you know, all his team is represented by one agent. You know, I'm like, okay, uh, whatever. Get in my car, drive to the next city. Um, it was Kingston and uh, pull up to the rink, walk in, knock on the coach's door. Come on in. Uh, hi, it's Alan Walsh. Who? Alan Walsh. Uh, I uh, talked to you last week. I'm the young agent from Los Angeles, just getting into the business. And he, he looks at me and he goes, you're the guy who called last week. I said, yeah. He goes, from LA. I said, yeah. He said, yeah. He says, and you're here. I said, yeah. And he said, kid, let me tell you something. I get calls from guys like you two, three a week. Young agent, just getting into the business. Would love to stop by and say hello. Sure. He goes, I tell everybody, sure. Come on down. Knock on my door. Come on in. He goes, you're the first guy to ever show up. Wow. And, and, and that really resonated with me because one of the sayings that always uh, I kept close and near and dear in my heart was 80% of success is just showing up. And uh, lots of people talk about it. Lots of people say, this is what I want to do. This is, this is my dream. And when I hear that, I say to them, it's great to have that dream. I understand it. I was there once myself. What are you doing to pursue that dream? And so many people don't know how to get into first gear. And by not being able to get into first gear, they just don't do it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they just started, do something. And people say to me, how do I get started? Do it. Do something. You know, make a phone call. Go to a meeting. Uh, you go to one meeting, turns into two meetings, turns into four meetings. You turns into, hey, call this guy, call that guy. It just, it's like you're planting a seed in the ground and then you're watering it and you're watching it grow. You don't know where the roots are going to go, um, what direction it's going to take you. You know, I started making these, you know, trips across the province of Ontario in a rental car. And it ultimately led me to Czech Republic. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of years later, I was getting on a plane to Moscow. You know, I never could have predicted that three or four years before in a million years. But, but every day I woke up and I said to myself, what, what can I do to move for, move my business forward? What can I do? And I was in, you know, grow, 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 grow mode, uh, meet people. Um, and then from, from Kingston, I made my way to Niagara Falls and, uh, and, and they had a team there that at Niagara Falls Thunder it was a completely different organization that is in the OHL right now. And I knocked on the door and the head coach and the assistant coach were together in the office. 
Come on in. Uh, uh, hi, it's Alan Walsh. Who? Uh, Alan Walsh. I talked to you last week. I'm the young agent uh, in, in L- from L.A. Uh, starting to represent players. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, hey, he, he, he came. He showed up. You know, came in, sat down. We talked for about half an hour. Basically, they grilled me, the two of them, the coach and the assistant coach. And then the coach said, let me tell you something. My younger brother plays on this team. And his agent is a disaster. Hasn't called him all year. Hasn't called him all year. It's outrageous. He said, uh, and my, my brother's a good player. He's our leading scorer. You know, he, he's got a future in, in hockey. Um, are you interested? I'm like, yeah, I don't have a client. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's go. Yeah. 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 He's like, he's like, okay, you wait here. When the guys show up for practice, I'm going to go take my uh, brother aside and see if he's open to meeting with you. And through the window, I see him leave and I see him meet with his brother outside put his arm around him and they're walking together slowly back and forth as he's talking to him. And he comes back into his office where I'm sitting there waiting. And he goes, okay, my, uh, my brother's open to talking to you here. Use my office. And they all clear out and I'm sitting in the coach's office. This kid comes in, sits down and uh, we talk a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, um, I have been so demoralized about hockey because for the last two years, I have an agent who doesn't think about me, doesn't care about me and really doesn't want me. He goes, and it really is, is like, I'd be so happy to get rid of him. And he says, just talking to you for 10, 15 minutes. You know, I, I, and I told him, I said, I want you to understand something. I have no clients. I have no experience, nothing, mm-hmm. but here's what I promise you. I'll do. I'll figure it out. <laughs> right. I'll figure it out. But every day I'm going to fight for you and work for you, but, and I'll figure it out, but I know nothing. And I figured that was my uh, full disclosure, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and he said to me, I, I, I'd love to, be your first client. Are we allowed to ask who that is? Yeah, I'm not going to give any names here, but okay. uh, that was uh, that was how that was how we we first met, and and from him, I ended up representing three or four other players on his team, and on my trip back to Montreal, stopped over in Kingston again. And the coach said that he had two players that were not represented yet that he would agree to introduce me to with their parents. And then on the trip back, here I am in Kingston, met with both players with their parents, and they both ended up signing with me as well. So wow. that was my first trip. You know, I probably drove, you know, over a thousand kilometers total. Uh, over the co- course of uh, three days, rode back into Montreal and had my first three clients in the business. Wow. And it just, 
It just starts going from there. But the whole, um, if there's a lesson to impart to people listening is how do you get started? You just got to do it. If you don't talk about it, don't talk about it. Get yourself out there and do it. Knock on doors, um, meet people, do it. Do it. Because if you really want it, that's the way to do it. Okay. Wow. Successful trip. Um, so, and be sure to stick around for part two on Tuesday next week. You can see it around noon Eastern Standard Time. Alan and I with the second half of How to Be an Agent in the NHL.